We're coming to you today from the television studio in Charlotte, which is an honor and a privilege for me, and we're glad that we can be with you on this special day. As we gather on this special day to do and to hear and to consider things of great importance, things that will make a difference now and especially in the future, probably the near future, we really need to grasp the significance of it. You see, today is not a day like any other. It's special, set apart for special use, just as all of you are set apart for special use by our Heavenly Father and by Jesus Christ, to whom all authority has been given. An important theme for the living church of God has been to restore apostolic Christianity, to understand and to practice things that the apostles did. And as the church began on this day in Jerusalem in 31 A.D., what was it like back then? Who were these people? What did they face? What did they do? How did they cope long ago as we remember that time on this special day? As we look back into time at a different age, at a different culture, Uh, Some may think, well, this is interesting, but uh, what possible relevance can it have for us today? Why, the things we face, the the evils in society, the, the stress, the pressure, just didn't exist back then. Is that true? Is that the way it was? Can we learn from these things? On this special day of Pentecost, let's look at the conditions, the pressures faced by Jesus Christ and the apostles as the church began. And we'll see the instruction and solutions that God inspired. Today, as we survey the world scene in our highly technical, fast-paced world, we see a lot of deep-seated, seemingly intractable problems. All about us we see sexual immorality and perversion. It's in our entertainment. It's in our advertising. It's in, it's in almost every phase of life. It's crept into worldly churches. It's in our schools. It's, it's something that we are faced with. And brethren, it's worse than you know. We also today face with pagan practices, things that you wouldn't think would be prevalent in a modern age. And yet <clears throat> all about us we see pagan practices creeping into lives in in subtle ways and sometimes in obvious ways. All about us, we see religious confusion. Religion is big business. Religion uh, is uh, being uh, noised about. It's it's, uh, the popular press in, in so many ways, but it's confused. We also see in our society strife, anger. We see destructive competition in all phases of business and sports and in our culture. And, of course, we see, as you look about us, unrestrained human nature. The barriers are down, and almost anything goes today. Now, at whatever age or station in life that you are, we are exposed to these things today. Now, as we think about that, brethren, what did did Jesus Christ face what were uh, what did his early followers experience? What were they going through at that time? Let's take a look. I'll turn to Galatians chapter 5. 
Galatians 5, verse 17. Familiar scriptures, but it gives us a clue. These words were written long ago, and it talked about the things that I've just mentioned. Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things you wish. So it's talking here about these things that I've just described, these evil things that were going on. Then uh, in verse 19, it picks up and says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, sexual sins, and immorality, you see, was rampant at that time. And it's written about here. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus Christ and the apostles had to deal with sexual immorality in their time. Now, uh, Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees, and they didn't like what he had to say to them. Let's take a look at some of these things. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 38. <clears throat> Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They said, give us proof. If you who you say you are who you say you are, give us proof. Give us a sign. Verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, Jesus Christ knew their private lives. He knew of their evil thoughts. He knew of their adulterous uh, practices. And he uh, brought that out and pointed it out to them at that point. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. In Jonah's time, those evil people in Nineveh did listen and repented. And yet in Jesus' time, the Pharisees were not repentant. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Not just a physical prophet, but the very Messiah was there. And they would not hear him, and they knew who he was. <clears throat> Turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Very familiar passage to you. Of course, you're students of the Bible, so all of these passages are familiar. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early... In the morning, he came again to the temple, <clears throat> and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought him, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in his midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So we see again that Jesus was dealing with these sexual sins in his time. Sexual immorality was rampant. 
in those days also. And here's a woman, you see, taken in the very act of adultery. Verse 5, Now Moses, they said, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Again, not really interested in justice here, but trying to trip up Jesus Christ. Verse 6, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Do you have this mental image? They didn't get the answer they expected, but calmly he sits down or stoops down and begins to write in the ground as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, they pressed. They pressed the point. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He shamed them, you see, because they knew in their hearts that they were guilty of what they had accused this woman of, if not that, certainly some other sin. Verse 8, And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. As I said, Jesus shamed them. I don't know what he wrote on the ground, but it pricked their conscience. It obviously hit home, and they left. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Again, a probing question for her. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, go and keep up your sinful activities. No, no, not at all. He gave her a chance at this point, you see, to repent and to change her life. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So here we have this wonderful lesson uh, where how Jesus dealt with that sexual immorality at his time and how he dealt with those accusers and how he uh, admonished this woman to repent and to change. Let's turn over to our back a few pages to John chapter 4. Again, we may think that our circumstances today are different than what they had back in their day. And yet let's look at another account that shows that human nature has not changed. John chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 3, John 4, verse 3, He left Judea, talking about Jesus Christ, and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now that in itself was unusual because the Jews, you see, would go way around. They did not want to interact with Samaritans. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Shikar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. That was in about 1900 B.C., You can read about that in Genesis 48. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour, about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So here we see Jesus, human being, in the heat of the day, resting at the well. And a woman comes to draw water. And he asked her to give him a drink. For his disciples, verse 8, had gone away into the city to buy food. 
Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She was shocked by this. Because you see, the Jews didn't talk to uh, the Samaritans. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I'm sure her ears perked up at that. She may not have understood what it meant and obviously didn't. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? She's focusing on the physical, not understanding that Jesus Christ is talking about a spiritual Aspect. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. She could understand that. She came to the well every day. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me of this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She saw this as a great labor-saving device. And yet she didn't understand, you see. <clears throat> verse 16, Jesus said, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. You know, in our country today and around the world, many, many people live together without the benefit of matrimony, without entering into that marriage covenant that is so precious and so important. And that's what was happening here. So it's not new. And Jesus Christ was dealing with it at this point. In time, verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She went on in verse 20 and said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. <clears throat> she was pointing out the prejudice, pointing out what the Jews were saying. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem work. Worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. What <clears throat> We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, Jesus said, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Very important here, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Brethren, he was explaining that long ago. It's recorded for us. And we need to grasp that as God's people, that God seeks those that worship him in spirit and truth. And on this day, we focus on the Holy Spirit and we talk about God's truth. Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 5. He was dealing with immorality. Matthew chapter 5, very familiar chapter to all of you. It's known as the Beatitudes, these uh, instructions for uh, Christian living. 
And in Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus Christ said on this very subject that we're talking about here, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. One of the basic Ten Commandments is so important. Verse 28, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, he was talking to those men who were the Pharisees and Sadducees and so on, to those people at that time. This certainly applies to women and men. And at this point in time, as we read that, we realize that Jesus Christ magnified the law. It wasn't just the physical act that was a sin. Certainly that was sinful. But it was also the thought. The point here, we can have sinful thoughts. It all begins in the mind. Every action is a result of a thought. And Jesus Christ said evil thoughts, adulterous thoughts were sin, not just the act. So it certainly comes down to the point of being able to control our thoughts. Jesus Christ dealt with immorality long ago. Now, the apostles also had to deal with these problems. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, a great commercial city that had all sorts of problems that our cities have today. Maybe not traffic jams in the way that we know. Maybe not some of those things, but as far as people living in close proximity, people doing what they want to do rather than following God's ways, that was rampant at that time. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself, Paul was saying. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. God will not allow those things in the kingdom that he is going to set up on this earth. Verse 11, and such were some of you. His audience, you see, had come out of this world and, and they had been guilty of some of these things. He says, but you were washed, you see, at baptism having those sins removed. But you were sanctified or set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul was dealing with it at that time and explaining to uh, his God's people at that time uh, about these things that we're talking about today. Drop down to verse 18. Paul said, flee sexual immorality. What happens if you find yourself, young people, young adults, uh, anyone in a situation that is set up for or could, could cause you to sin? He says, flee sexual immorality. Don't walk, run. It's important. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we can see, brethren, that these things are not new. Now, as we look back in Scripture, we see that this problem apparently continued to be a problem from time to time on down through history. Look at Revelation chapter 2. 
Revelation chapter 2. Here we have the letters to the churches. I hope that you'll read it all. We'll just look at the highlights here. Revelation chapter 2. We have the church at Pergamos being described. Look at Revelation 2 verse 14. Jesus Christ said, But I have a few things against you, because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So it continued to be a problem. It popped up from time to time in the churches at that time. And then going on down to verse 21, here it describes the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2, verse 20, the church at Thyatira, it says, Nevertheless, Christ said to them, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So we can see that this problem popped up from time to time. And it's recorded here so that we can understand it, so that we can have the admonition and the instruction to avoid those things. So, brethren, for mankind, and even for God's church, promiscuity, sexual immorality down through the ages has been a problem. Brethren, don't be caught off guards. As human beings, we are vulnerable. It can happen when you least expect it. Look at entertainment, movies. Videos, television, music. Now, there is good entertainment, but you have to look for it. I love a good movie, but there are very few good movies. Uh, music certainly sets the, the mood. And obviously, in television and the videos today, there is a lot of trash. So we have to be careful and to guard our minds. There is good entertainment, but you have to um, not be misled by the wrong entertainment. To put those thoughts that Christ said were sinful in your mind. The workplace. You know, men and women spend more time today in the workplace than they do at home. And there's, there's lots of lonely people, lots of frustrated people in the workplace. Uh, and there are people ready to take advantage of that. And office romances and, and the sorts of things that develop and all the problems that, that, uh, uh, result from that are out there in the workplace. So, Certainly, uh, as we earn a living, as we go about practicing our business or our profession or our job, we have to be on guard because this is Satan's society. The Internet. The Internet is a wonderful tool. I use it almost daily. Most of you are using it uh, in so many ways for personal uh, work, for business and all of these things. It is a wonderful tool. But the most visited sites on the Internet are pornographic sites. And we have to realize that it's there, you see. Um, uh, some may push it on you. Resist it. Resist it. It's important that we not be drawn into that. Could it happen in God's church? To it? Could it happen to God's people? Yes. And it has. And it does. So we have to be on guard against that. Parents, do you know where your children are? Do you know what they're watching? Do you know what they're listening to? Do you know what they're reading? Do you know who they're touching? Do you know who's touching them? We live in an age where we have to be on guard. Now, we will look at solutions as we go along in the sermon today. 
Now, Jesus and his followers also had to deal with paganism and idolatry back in his time. Look over at Matthew chapter 4. Please turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, verse 8. Mr. Herbert Armstrong called this the battle of the ages. And you could read over this and not realize the significance of this account that we're going to look at. Satan trying to tempt and to lure Jesus Christ, you see. Now, let's look at Matthew 4, um, verse 8. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, clearly, clearly, you see, Satan, the devil, had that power as the God of this world of this age, since uh, God's kingdom is not here on this earth yet. And Satan tried to lure Jesus to worship him with great promises. Brethren, he will do the same with you. Satan will promise you the world, but he's a liar. And he promised Jesus Christ the world, and yet Jesus Christ had the answer in verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus Christ knew that idolatry was a terrible thing, and obviously not something that he would do. Be on guard. Satan will promise you. Great things. Now, you know the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Turn back there briefly. We'll not use the, or read the whole thing. Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, all thinking people will ask themselves that question at some time, or at least should. And so here this this rich young man came and asked Jesus Christ this important question. And Jesus told him, keep the commandments. And you know the story. He he uh, told him which ones. And, and in verse 21, the young man said, oh, I've done all that. <laughs> I've done all that. What else? And, of course, Jesus knew his heart. And in verse 22, he said, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. You see, Christ perceived that this young man's wealth had come between him and God. It was all about taking care of his business interests, his investments, uh, his enterprise. And he was not willing to lay that aside and serve God and to do, use his wealth in that way. Now, also a few pages back in Luke uh, chapter 12, a parable that that uh, you're familiar with, a man who's uh, in Luke 12, uh, we'll begin in verse 13, actually uh, verse uh, 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, Jesus Christ giving a parable saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. You know, the Bible is full of of understatements. Here's a man that was a good farmer. He knew how to do it. He was a good businessman, obviously, and his ground yielded plentifully. He had a bumper crop. 
And because of that, focusing on that, verse 17, and he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Well, being a good businessman, he tore down the old barns and built bigger ones to handle his his wealth, to handle his crops. And verse 19, he says, and I will say to my soul, which meaning to myself, self, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So the emphasis you see here in his life was on the physical. He had it made. He had no financial worries. He had the great retirement, the, the good life. Eat, drink, and be merry. He wasn't concerned about others. He wasn't using his wealth to serve. It was all about him. And in verse 20, we see God said something to him that uh, should have made him shiver. God said, you fool. Brethren, if God calls us a fool, we're in deep trouble. This man was foolish. He missed the point. And you know the story. Uh, his life was required. And he didn't get to enjoy those physical things on which he had focused. Now, Christ made it plain what our emphasis should be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, again back to the Beatitudes. And as physical human beings, we can lose sight of this. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have wealth if we have that blessing. But it can be a great trial. And certainly we should use it in a way that serves God and to enjoy the blessings and to acknowledge that they come from Him. Matthew 6, verse 24. No one, Christ said, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. Our great God understands human nature. Divided loyalties will destroy you. And in this case, he said, you cannot serve two masters. And then he says in verse 24 of Matthew 6, you cannot serve God and mammon, that is, riches. If you're spending your life seeking riches, you're missing the point. And that's what he told the rich young ruler. That's what he told the man whose ground yielded plentifully when he called him a fool. And we do not want to fall into that sort of a problem. Now, why is that? Why, why is that a true thing? Why is that a true statement? I mean, God said it, but there's a reason. He has a reason. Well, the Apostle Paul explained it to Timothy back in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. We find instruction concerning wealth and our approach to it. 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. Let's start in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Oh, that we could learn that. To be content. Now, the trick, of course, is to be content while working to improve yourself as God allows. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You know, the richest people on earth, Mr. Gates or Mr. Buffett or some incredibly rich Arab sheikh, you see, in Saudi Arabia, no matter what they have, at death they take nothing with them. Nothing at all. It is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Verse 9, 
Paul really zeroes in on the problems that we're describing here about wealth and our approach to it. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Because if that's our focus, we can be trapped, we can be tricked. And into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not the money itself. Money is a tool. Money is only a tool. A wise man once said it only makes us more of what we already are. You take a person who is miserly and cheap and give him a lot of money, he'll be even more miserly and grasping. You take a person that's generous and outgoing, you give them a lot of money, they will generally be more generous and outgoing. You see, it seems to magnify. But the love of money is the problem. It is a root of all evil for which... Some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, and I say to you, you, O people of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. It's important that that be our emphasis rather than seeking, you see, uh, great wealth. Now, uh, There are other forms of idolatry. There are other forms of idolatry that we need to be on guard against. Turn over to Colossians. Colossians 2. Colossians 2. Some of these things are are not so obvious. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18. Paul wrote to the Colossians. Verse 18, let no one defraud you of your reward. And there are those who would, you see, that mislead. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Worship of angels. Do you realize that's very fashionable? As I visit some of my unconverted relatives, people that I love dearly and to whom I'm very close, I'll visit their homes and they'll have uh, statues of angels and pictures of angels as they think they might appear on the wall, you see. We have the great museums of Europe filled with the paintings of the old masters with all these, what they think angels look like. It's very fashionable. It's very popular. And it's idolatry. So we don't want to be drawn into that. Now, there are other examples of that, uh, various icons that uh, people uh, focus on and think this must be religious. And so uh, an icon, uh, which is really very big in some of the um, uh, religions, uh, Eastern Orthodox, that sort of thing. And then, of course, today, religious symbols are very popular. And people put them on their walls and put them in their lawns and put them on their cars and do various things. And people like to wear items of jewelry that are religious symbols. And sometimes we in God's church may want to do that. If you wear any kind of a symbol like that, I urge you to look into its origin to be sure that it's not something that is of pagan origin. But now, that's not all. As we consider the subject of idolatry, that's not all. Let's look back in the Old Testament. Look back at 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Samuel, who was such a great servant of God from childhood, recorded some things under inspiration that we need to know. It was written long ago, but it's as valid today as it was back then. 
1 Samuel 15, verse 23. You know the story. He'd been dealing with Saul. And Saul was a man who could not follow instructions. He was a man who did not follow through on what he'd been told to do. And because of it, it cost him the kingdom. And here, Samuel is giving him instruction. Verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15. He said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the eternal? He was trying to get through Saul's head that obedience was important. Behold, Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Listen to this, brethren, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. My margin says divination which includes all sorts of things involving appealing to the stars, appealing to various spirits, to to being involved in any sort of spells or charms or that sort of thing. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Brethren, do we grasp that? Do we grasp that? Don't dabble in divination. People love to read their horoscopes and ask, well, what is your sign of the zodiac? Uh, and get involved in those sorts of things. Don't dabble in divination. Don't be stubborn and hard-headed. I used to work with a man who took great pride in the fact, he says, I'm a hard-headed Dutchman. <laughs> and he was. But you see, that's not pleasing to God. That's not an attitude that God is pleased with. Don't be stubborn and hard-headed. And I know that you aren't, but it is in there in our human nature. And so we review these things and we focus on these things. Now, let's go back to the New Testament as we think about idolatry and, and look at something that might be a shocker to you. Colossians. Back to Colossians. Chapter 3. Colossians 3. <clears throat> and verse 5. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. It says, Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. We talked about that a few moments ago. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Do we grasp that? that? That covetousness is idolatry in God's eyes? And it's His viewpoint that counts. It's not what we think, it's what God thinks. So we see that covetousness is idolatry. Now, idolatry or covetousness is defined as grasping to be avaricious, to be selfish, to be mercenary, greedy for gain. And if we find ourselves trying to keep up with the Joneses, as is the expression, if we try find ourselves being driven to do those things, we need to be careful. If we are covetousness, it is as idolatry. And we obviously want to avoid that for certain. Now, there's a warning from the Apostle Paul found in 1 Corinthians 10. Let's take a look at that. 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. I hope you'll read all of it, but we'll pick up the verse, uh, the chapter here, chapter 10 and verse 10. I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 7. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. We just went through the days of unleavened bread a few weeks ago, and we saw how God's people back at that time, lost their focus and became idolaters. He says, do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
So clearly we see that we're not to do that. Drop down to verse 12. Here it is, brethren. This is a warning. Paul says, look out. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we should never be filled with our own self-confidence. If we, we should obviously always look to God for what we need. And then finally, one other scripture on this subject of idolatry. Let's turn back to 1 John. 1 John, written many years after this day that we're picturing today, Pentecost, but certainly prevalent or relevant to us today. 1 John 5, verse 21. Now, it's a wonderful book, and he talks about so many things that are important. But the last verse in this book of John 1, verse 5, 1 John 5, verse 21, the last verse is, Little children, and you know we're all children grown up. We're God's children. We may be... uh, young or middle-aged or elderly, but we're all children in that sense. We are the flock. And it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And so, brethren, we are to be very careful to keep yourselves, be on guard, and not fall into some of the things that we've talked about here. Now, religious confusion was a problem back then as now. Let's take a look at that. Look at Matthew uh, 22. We're looking at lots of scriptures today, brethren. I hope you enjoy doing that because the scriptures tell the story much better than I can. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. What a wretched attitude. Trying to catch somebody in a wrong thought or a wrong word or uh, to be able to attack their position, as it were. Now, verse 16, And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. And then they set up this question about should you pay your taxes or not. And, of course, Jesus, being all wise, had just the right answer for them. Now, drop down to verse 23. The same day... The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him asking him, Teacher! And then they unfolded this this sticky question that they thought would uh, trick Jesus Christ up. They weren't after the truth. They had divergent views, and they wanted to use this religious confusion, their views against the other person's views, to, uh, to trick Jesus and to try to trap him. It was religious confusion. You see... Uh, uh, Jesus had to deal with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots. Uh, all had conflicting ideas, and they were constantly striving for prominence. It wasn't about the truth for them. It was about who's going to be in charge. Who's going to make the rules? Who's going to crack the whip? They all wanted prominence, and it, it created a confusing situation in Jesus Christ's time. He brought order. He brought clear doctrine, clear instruction, and they were intimidated by that, and they hated that, as you know. Now, Paul had an experience that shows the discord and confusion 
that was going on in his time. And he wisely used it to his advantage. Turn back to Acts chapter 23. Paul knew his enemies. And being wise and having presence of mind, he used that at this point to survive what could have been a disastrous situation. Acts chapter 23, uh, verse 6. <clears throat> you know the story. Um, uh, Paul was uh, uh, preaching to the people at that time, and there was great controversy about it. And we'll pick up the story in verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council. So he picked up on who was there, and he knew what their beliefs were. He said, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Because Paul was preaching to them the resurrection, made possible, of course, by uh, uh, Jesus Christ. So he set up the stage there. He was being tried before the council, and he throws out this statement. Look at verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So they had these divergent views. Then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes who were of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there, then when there arose a great dissension, you see this confusion? The commander, fearing Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him to the barracks. So here, because of this religious confusion, Paul was able to play his enemies against each other and escape from what could have been a disastrous situation. Now, as we think about this, it's chaos. It was chaos then, much as it is today. When you look around the world today and see how many different brands of religion there are in the Catholic world, the Protestant world, uh, the Eastern religions, uh, Islam, all of those things, everybody has a viewpoint. And as a result of that, we have confusion. Now, later, as we go on in history, it seems that there was some confusion even in the church of God. Turn back to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 6. Galatians 1, verse 6. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul said, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So Paul saw that there was confusion beginning to go, and he met it head on with strong language. Now, there was a lot of discussion and confusion going on at that time about the necessity of circumcision. 
the Jews or the Judaizers obviously said it, it, it had to be done. It was a, a, a requirement for salvation. And, of course, the Gentiles uh, had not been circumcised. And so Paul had to deal with that. And he dealt with it very bluntly. Look at Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 11. <clears throat> I hope you'll read the verses that go before and after, but we'll pick up uh, where Paul just really laid it out for them. Galatians 5, verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Verse 12. I wish that those who trouble you would cut themselves off. That's pretty plain language. (laughs) He said, cut off the whole thing, is what he was saying. It was very uh, blunt language to try to cut through the confusion to get to the truth of the matter. And brethren, we should certainly do that. Now, Paul also gave instruction to Titus. Turn back to Titus right after Timothy. Titus 1. And let's look at the instruction that Paul wrote to Titus long ago. Titus 1, verse 10. Paul said, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision which we had just referred to a moment ago, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. Verse 12, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Oh my, that was not politically correct, I'm sure. And yet Paul was very straightforward. Verse 13, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and to commandments of men who turn from the truth. Rather, Paul gave very plain words to help the people back then stay on track. There was religious confusion back then. And brethren, we in today's modern age have to avoid religious confusion. There are those who bring in Uh, strange doctrines, or who leave the plain teachings of Scripture. And we have so many different groups out there today doing these various things. We need to avoid religious confusion. Now, those early Christians also had to deal with strife and anger and destructive competition. Even among the disciples, while Jesus was with them, this was a problem. Let's look at that. Look at Mark chapter uh, 9. Please turn back to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, Mark 9, verse 33. Talking about Jesus here. And then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? What did you discuss? What were you guys talking about? Obviously, along the way, Christ had overheard or perceived this dispute going on among his, uh, his students, his disciples. Verse 34, but they kept silent. <laughs> they didn't want to own up to it. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They'd lost sight of what Jesus was teaching. They were, to, were, they were worried about office. They were worried about who was going to be in charge. Who was going to be the chief. It's a common problem today in this society. 
verse 35. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. A completely different approach. They wanted to know who was going to be number one. And Jesus said, you should be concerned about who's going to be the servant who will be last. It's very hard for human nature to grasp that, and yet it's a biblical principle. It's a a godly attitude that we should be developing. Let's look going on in Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, this was trying to set Jesus up. For if he had said, well, sure, I'll do whatever you ask, then they had him. And yet he was much too wise for that. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? He he answered it properly, as we can see. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left hand in your glory. What gall, what chutzpah. That they would that they would say we want to be the chief. Let us sit on one on your right and one on your left. Um, it's it's amazing. Now you know what would have happened if Jesus had said, "Okay, you can be on the right hand and you can be on the left." As soon as he said that, they'd be fighting about which one was greatest. But he had too much wisdom for that, obviously, and he did not grant that to them. Drop down. Then to verse 41, what was the reaction of the other disciples? Here we have two wanting to be uh, in charge. They're wanting to be the preeminent ones. And so uh, in verse 41, we see what the reaction was. And when the ten heard it, they heard what James and John had asked and what they wanted. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. So here we see that... Jesus Christ had to deal with this destructive competition even among his closest followers, his students, his disciples. Now, let's look over at Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 24. <clears throat> now, It really continues this, uh, just saying it slightly differently here in Luke 22, verse 24. It says, But there was also rivalry among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. I am the greatest. You know, that's that's what some professional athletes like to say. That's what a famous boxer in another generation had to say. I am the greatest. And that's what the, the disciples wanted to be able to say. It was a wrong attitude. And Jesus rebuked them and pointed out that it was not to be that way among his people. Verse 26, but among you, on the contrary, he who is greatest, let him be the younger. And he who governs, he who serves. So it's important, brethren, that we grasp that. And I know that you do. Contentions. Let's look at that quickly. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I told you we'd look at lots of scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 11. Contentions. Uh, This carrying on that is non-productive. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 11. For it has been declared to me, Paul said, concerning you, my brethren... By those of Chloe's household that there are contentions, quarrels, 
among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or Peter, or I am of Christ. So they all had their champion. They, they wanted to be uh, the different factions, and they were quarreling about who was going to be the preeminent one. Verse 13, wonderful question here that we need to consider. Paul certainly answers it. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Brethren, no. Christ is not divided. But men are. Men are. And it is a shame for all that it is that way. And yet, brethren, Jesus Christ is not divided. It says, was Paul crucified for you? Are you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes on and says, no, that was not the case. But they were quarreling over this, about their champion, their leader. And Christ said, no, it was not to be that way. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 20. Paul wrote, For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Clearly, clearly, uh, Paul had a mess on his hands, and he had to deal with it, brethren. And certainly he did at that time. Now, Paul took the broad view and and looking at these things. And as he instructed the people, look back, uh, turn over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. Paul's writings to the church at Philippi. Philippians 1, verse 15. Paul wrote to them, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Is that possible? Well, when you look around at so many of the hundreds of groups there are today that are the Church of God, that call themselves the Church of God, you see that some do that, I'm sure. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So as we read this going on, verse 13, what then, Paul said? What's the result of that? He took this broad view, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So, brethren, we don't have to trouble ourselves about these other groups and those sorts of things. Just take the view that Paul had. If Christ is being preached, we can rejoice and let them uh, be judged by God and not by us as it were. Now, it was still a problem. I mean, Paul dealt with it there. It was still a problem many years later. Turn back to Third John. Third John, little brief book as the Apostle John wrote. Third John 9. Only one chapter here. Third John 9. And let's see what John was dealing with many, many years later. He said, 
I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come to you, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he does he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So he, it was still a problem in having that. Now, unrestrained human nature, which is given to profligate behavior or conduct, uh, that is given to dissipation, uh, self-indulgence, and extravagant misbehavior. We see that all around us. Unrestrained situations, unrestrained human nature. Now, uh, turn over to First Peter as I hurry along. First Peter, chapter 4. First Peter 4, verse 3. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. He's talking about us before we came out, you see. When we walked in licentiousness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That's the way it was for many people. And certainly, it's that way today. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. And so, we shouldn't be surprised about that. Let's look at Second Timothy. Second Timothy. Chapter 3 and verse 1. It describes the days that we live in, brethren. The days that we are in now. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. That is, times of stress. Uh, we read and hear and see a lot of stress today. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. The last days here are described in detail. Brethren, as we look at the dark side as we have thus far in the message today, it would be discouraging to leave it there. And we don't want to do that. But there's much, much more to the story. Something happened on this day in 31 A.D. that can change us and give us the strength we need to overcome these downward pulls, these sins of the flesh. Now, uh, you can look at the record. Look at the record in Exodus, which we reviewed recently during the, the Holy Days, back in uh, the Days of Unleavened Bread. Read the book of Joshua and Judges and Kings and Chronicles, and you see this saga of the incredible problems that people had because they would not obey God. Our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ knew that we could not do it alone, that we would need help. Now, let's turn over to John 14. John 14, they knew that we would need help, and Jesus Christ explained this to his followers. John 14, verse 16. John 14, verse 16, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper or comforter. Do we think of the Holy Spirit in that way? As a helper, a comforter? I hope that we do, brethren. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you will know Him, for it dwells with you and will be in you. So, God was, He told the 
the disciples they would have, this helper, this comforter. Drop down to verse 26. But the helper, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. Brethren, we should have that peace through the Holy Spirit. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Brethren, we talk about awful things that are going to come upon this world, this age. And yet as God's people, we need to take this admonition. Let your heart, let not your heart be troubled, and we should not be afraid. Going right on in John 15, um, verse 26, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, uh, which proceeds from the Father, it will testify of me. Again, he said plainly he was going to send this helper. John 16, going right on in context. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send it to you. And when it has come, it will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus Christ made it plain that this helper was going to come. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He knew they didn't understand, you see. However, when the spirit of truth has come, it will guide you into all truth. For it will not speak of its own authority, but whatever it hears it will speak, and it will tell you of things to come. So the Spirit was going to impart the understanding. Look at verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. And we of all people on the face of the earth should be cheerful, rejoicing in what God has revealed to us. Be of good cheer, he said. I have overcome the world. Now, clearly, uh, Christ overcame the world with the Holy Spirit, and so can we. So can we, brethren. Now, this was prophesied many years earlier. Turn back to Joel, that the Spirit would be given. Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, verse 28. The prophet wrote so long ago, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, it's not been poured out on all flesh yet, but it will. But this has been partially fulfilled in this day. Your sons... And your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And we see that that has come to pass partially. It certainly has. There's a wonderful concept that I hope that we can understand, brethren, if we'll turn over to Isaiah, moving quickly along. Isaiah 46. We focus on the kingdom of God. Let's talk about what God said about what he can do. Isaiah 46, verse 8. He said, Remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. And we were all transgressors before we were converted and forgiven of our sins. Remember the former things of old. Why do we look back at these ancient writings? God says to remember these things. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. 
Look at this, brethren, saying in verse 10, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Now, what is God's pleasure? What brings pleasure to God? Let's look at Luke 12. Luke 12. I hope this has special meaning for us on this day as we look at the importance of the Holy Spirit and when it was given and how it affects us and how we use it. Luke 12, verse 32. Luke 12, verse 32, Jesus Christ said, Do not fear, little flock. It's talking to us in this time as he talked to those back then. Do not fear, little flock, for it is the, your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. And Isaiah said God would do his pleasure. And what is his pleasure? To give us, brethren, the kingdom of God. What a wonderful thing. Now in Acts chapter 2, we'll take a quick look at that. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Here it describes this day, the very day that we're keeping. This uh, Back in 31 A.D. they were keeping it, and here in this year we are now keeping it. Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they didn't get there early, they weren't late, it was there, it was the time. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. One sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so here's this account of the Spirit being given for the first time. The Spirit had worked with these men, but it was not in them. And now it was in them for the first time. You can read all of it, brethren. I hope that you will. All the different nationalities that were there and the great miracle that was done there with the speaking of tongues and so on. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. This was an idle conversation. What did Peter say to them? Heed my words. He said, listen up. This is important. Drop down to verse 37 of Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were deeply moved. They were deeply moved. They knew they had heard the truth. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And here's the important part. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This Spirit that makes it possible for us to overcome. To to overcome the things that we've talked about here today. It's so important to us, brethren. It was back then. It is today. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We have the Spirit within us, was given on this day, and we walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. You see, we are free from that penalty because of Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. In the first part of this message, we talked about that and the problems that resulted. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded 
is life and peace. Brethren, a transformation has gone, taken place when we receive the Spirit. It says here that um, to be spiritually minded is life. We all want it. We cling to life. We look forward to eternal life. And it says in peace. We all want it. We all want peace in our lives. The peace of mind that only God's Holy Spirit can bring. Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, it's what we talk about and focus on on this day. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. There's the definition of a Christian. We have the Holy Spirit. Brethren, look at verse 14, Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, that's all of us. Hopefully we are being yielded to the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. All, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. What an incredible thing. Look at verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Certainly, brethren, that is what we look forward to. This day is called First Fruits, the Feast of First Fruits. Look at verse 23 of Romans 8. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. Clearly, brethren, we want to have that. Now, look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. I talked about those weaknesses earlier in the message. And here we see that the Spirit helps us with that. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God guides us even in our prayers and gives us the strength through His Holy Spirit to overcome those things and to live a godly life. Look at uh, verse 26. And we know, I'm sorry, we just read that. Um, verse 35 is where I want to go. And who shall separate us from the love of God Christ? Great question as we face difficulty, as we may be in difficulty now or have it in the future. What? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No, none of those things. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. That's not happened in our lifetime, though it has in times past and in generations past, but it may in the future. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, beautiful words of the Apostle Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Incredibly encouraging words as we read these things. How is this possible? That we can be saved from all those things? Because we have been given the Holy Spirit. Brethren, and we've only been given 
a beginning. It's just a beginning. I won't turn there, but in Second Corinthians 1, verse 22, it talks about the spirit that we have as a deposit in the New King James. And in the uh, King James, it's earnest. And you know that the earnest or deposit is only a small amount. We look forward to the time when we will not only have the spirit, but we will be spirit. Now, what about this spirit, this tool that God uses? He tells us that it is how he accomplishes his will. Let's go back to the Old Testament just for a moment. Zechariah, a scripture that most of you know by heart. Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6. Zechariah 4, verse 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the man that he was using at that time, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. So, brethren, what we see, it doesn't take great physical strength to accomplish God's will. We don't have great physical strength, but we do have His Holy Spirit. Now, Paul understood this because it was revealed to him. In 2 Corinthians 12, he said that when he was weak physically, he was strong spiritually. And, brethren, we need to understand that as well. He actually told Timothy that as well, that that uh, the, the Spirit of God was a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And we celebrate that and think about that on this particular day. Now, brethren, God has given us this wonderful tool, this essence of His being and power. What can we expect? And what does He expect? You can read about that in Galatians 5, verse 16, where it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Those fruits of the work were the downside, the dark side. With God's Spirit, we can bear fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and all the other wonderful attributes that God has. No questions, no question about that. Brethren, turn over to Romans 15 for my last scripture. Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, may God's Spirit fill you and give you the hope and the power that you need. Brethren, there is much to happen between now and Christ's return. But as first fruits, as we consider all these things, we can say God speed that day. 